0: This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is our fifth episode. We'll call this one the January 6th commemoration episode. And I want to thank the listeners before I get right into it for your interest, because we've had probably about a doubling of the amount of listeners that we had from the week before. The show was catching on, and uh, it, it can't happen unless I have enthusiastic listeners who care about the issues that I'm talking about. Now, what we were doing in the show, as I've said before, we split it up with some current events, and then I go into some legal stories. There are other issues that I'll go into, other things uh, as time goes on in the show, is my uh, major penchant for baseball card collecting and my involvement in that hobby as both a collector and a lawyer, which I find that there are many interesting stories in there, as well as the people that are part of this hobby are the most bizarre people. And we'll get into that in a separate show, but uh, keep that in mind. Now, this uh, January 6th fanfare from this week, it was commemorated the way we commemorated 9-11, really, uh, like from you know the year after. Speeches were given, there were somber words, there was weeping, there were moments of silence. They had the cast from Hamilton that was singing. I mean, it was just utterly bonkers lunacy. The only thing that was missing really was uh, reading off the names of the 3,000 victims that were killed. Of course, that didn't happen at all because there were no victims but one, and she was certainly uh, not the type of victim that was on nine eleven. She was one of the perpetrators, according to the government. Anyway, President Biden started the idiocy by talking about what he felt was important, which was the truth. That's what he said. It was important that the truth come out. Now, this is a guy who's been caught lying his entire life, his entire life. He cheated in law school. He plagiarized speeches. He's claimed that he's been in places that he hasn't been. Remember, he talked about that corn pop, you know, the very dangerous gang member corn pop. These were all purposeful lies. Those are all purposeful things that he did. Now he's lying, frankly, because I don't think he even knows What he's talking about. His brain is about as soft as a three-week-old banana. Now, listen to this whopper that he said. Some have already made the ultimate sacrifice in this sacred effort. Jill and I have mourned police officers in this Capitol Rotunda not once but twice in the wake of January 6th, meaning because what happened on January 6th? Once to honor Officer Brian Sicknick, who lost his life the day after the attack, and a second time to honor Officer Billy Evans, who lost his life defending the Capitol as well. What Biden didn't mention is that Officer Evans was killed three months after January 6th in the line of duty by a black nationalist supporter of Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam. Had nothing to do with anything that occurred on January 6th. It was not in the wake of January 6th. There's absolutely no connection to those two events, the murder of the officer and what occurred on January 6th. Just a complete lie, just making shit up. And Brian Sicknick, as we know, died of natural causes. He had strokes, which killed him the next day. Again, having nothing to do with what occurred on January 6th, you know, the date when uh, there was the insurrection to take over the country. Now, Kamala Harris said, America's democracy was attacked on January 6th. We must unite in defense of our democracy. And she claimed that January 6th was comparable to Pearl Harbor and the 9-11 terrorist attacks. This is what she said. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were, what they were doing, when our democracy came under assault, she said. Dates that occupy not only a place in our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. I'm like, what? How can you possibly compare a bunch of mostly unarmed hillbillies rioting without any leadership to the thousands who died at Pearl Harbor, the thousands who died from the 9-11 attacks when they, the terrorists tried to fly into the Capitol? Only one person was killed on January 6th. Not 3,000. And that was Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed 110-pound Air Force veteran who was killed by a Capitol Police officer named Michael Bird as she tried to get into the speaker's lobby through a broken door. I mean, we all saw the videos there. Bird, of course, was uh, best known before killing Ashley Babbitt of leaving his loaded Glock in a bathroom in 2019 in the Capitol. And it was found later by another Capitol Police officer who was just doing a routine Security sweep and found his loaded gun without a safety on the gun. Anyway, Kamala claims that we will all remember every detail from January 6, like we do 9-11. You know, that is just complete, utter bullshit. I remember every detail from 9-11. Where I was when I found out, walking out of the subway, how the towers looked as they fell from uh, watching from my window. It was a couple of, uh, I guess about a mile or so from the World Trade Center, just looking down the street. I remember the smell in the air, the, the burning smell as I walked outside and walked home because there was obviously no cabs or subways. I remember the ash-covered people walking up Madison Avenue. They were covered in ash. This this thick, white, grayish just blob all over them. They were walking like zombies. Some were crying quietly to themselves and they all had this the thick, pasty ash in their hair, all over their bodies. I remember the hard rain from the night before in Manhattan. It was such a hard rain the night before 9-11. It was like the worst flood. And I remember losing a flip-flop on the street, on the sidewalks of the Upper East Side. And I also remember the days after, how everybody felt and acted. Now, January 6th? I don't remember shit about January 6th. I don't remember a single thing learning about remembering where I was, any kind of specific memory other than thinking that Trump was an idiot to have spurred this because he had lost the election and was having sour grapes. Now, on January 6th, thousands of Trump supporters gathered at a Save America rally that was organized to challenge the result of the November election that occurred a couple months before. And they listened to Trump as he spoke on the National Mall near the White House. And in a 70-minute speech, Trump exhorted them to march on Congress where the politicians had met to certify Biden's win. And the attack began moments after. And these are some of the comments that Trump made. We won this election and we won it by a landslide. We will stop the steal. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. If you don't fight like hell, you're going to not have a country anymore. We're all going to the Capitol. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that he said to his supporters. And as the march, the attacks, whatever you'll call it was going on, Trump was sitting in the White House watching it, didn't do a thing. Only after there was pleading from aides and congressional allies, all of a sudden, Trump then released a taped video urging his masses of supporters to go home. And of course, even in that video, he still claimed that the election was stolen from him. And as we know, later, he could have done a hell of a lot more as both of his kids, we learned, exhorted him to try to stop this, but he just refused. And this is the part that that pisses me off the most about all of this, because I've represented some people from January 6th that were charged or uncharged, and now his supporters that day are sitting in jail, many of them, for what occurred. And he had a chance to pardon some of them, at least the ones that were arrested by the time he was still in office, he could have pardoned them and he, and he did absolutely nothing. He didn't pardon a single one of them. And that's really the kind of guy he is. He's just loyal to himself and he expects loyalty from everyone. Well, you have people from January 6th who genuinely love this country and love Trump and they're sitting in jail right now and Trump is pardoning Lil Wayne, Lil, Lil Wayne. And then uh, he commuted the sense of, This Solomon Melgin, this major Democratic donor, a Democratic donor, and an eye doctor who falsely billed the government out of forty-two million dollars? That guy gets out of jail, and the January sixth dudes are sitting in there, and they at least had, you know, they in their heart they had pure intention. They weren't stealing anything. So, and, and regardless, to me, the January 6th insurrection attacks, whatever you'll call it, it was not an armed terror attack designed to take over the country. Give me a break. It just wasn't. There were like 12 guns found out of hundreds of people that were arrested, probably thousands of people that were there. The FBI concluded there was no one in charge that was leading this. And the rioting, come on, it was, it was definitely rioting, but it was hardly the kind of rioting that we saw after the George Floyd murder, you know, where city after city burned down to the ground. And of course, Trump did nothing to stop it. There was no effort to take over the country on January 6th. It was a bunch of hardcore MAGA supporters feeling, I suppose, disenfranchised due to the abuse they took from mostly the Republican Party for years. And of course, Trump riling them up. But now we're watching as uh, Biden and, and Harris, they're using this event to hurt the rest of us by further dividing the nation and using it to score points against Republicans. That's all this is. This was just a political show. And who gave the gift to them? Who gave them this gift? Trump. Trump and his supporters. It's the truth, because you see all this commemoration and all this excitement about January 6th because of some rioting on the Capitol. Where's the commemoration and the excitement about all the uh, liberal cities that burned to the ground after George Floyd? Nothing, just swept under the carpet. And that was real mayhem. That was massive damage. You can't compare it to what happened on January 6th. can't. And regarding the, the political points, the, the whole reason the Democrats are doing this, at the Capitol this past Thursday, when they were having this commemoration, there were no Republicans present, none, all Democrats. And they were just calling Republicans terrorists due to the, the riots. And, but who did the Democrats manage to dig up to show up there? Well, Dick Cheney, who I had actually forgotten was still alive, I'll be honest with you. They dug Dick Cheney up out of the ground, literally out of the ground, to come to the Capitol so he could trash Trump and Republicans. Can you imagine this? This is like the, the you know, Darth Vader, according to Democrats. That's how much they hated him, the most evil person in the Republican Party. And what do you see happen? The liberals are swarming him, crowding him there on Thursday, like he was a rock star. This is the same bunch of liberals who ripped him to shreds because he was a war criminal, Uh, you know, the architect, one of the architects of the war on terror, the Iraq war. Now they love him because they can use him as a useful idiot against the Republicans. And, you know, this is what Cheney said. This is the guy they love so much. In 2006, well after the Iraq invasion, the U.S. invasion was the right thing to do. And if we had to do it again, we would certainly do the same exact thing. That's Dick Cheney the guy that they love now. They love him. They can't get enough of him. Why? Because he's a useful idiot. Now, Joe Biden in 2008 said this about Dick Cheney. Now, you have to imagine me saying it but slurring words and maybe throwing in a few more lies. I'm not being a wise guy here about I didn't didn't know what he's done. I mean, there's not many things I'd picked that I thought he'd done that have been good. I think he's done more harm than any other single elected official in memory in terms of shredding the Constitution. That's what Biden said. You know, condoning torture, pushing torture as a policy. This idea of a unitary executive, meaning the Congress and the people have no power in time of war, and the president controls everything. That's what FJB said. That's what he said about Dick Cheney. Now they love him. They can't get enough of him. And as I said, you know, what they're really doing, besides scoring points with this January 6th bullshit, is they're using it as a cover for what's really been a disastrous first year in office. I mean, it's been an utter failure of monumental proportions. You've got the, it started with the comical withdrawal from Afghanistan, where we lost Afghanistan without a shot being fired. We left $80 billion of our weapons in the hands of genocidal, murderous Muslim terrorists, the Taliban. We left Americans behind. More importantly, we left without even a base in Afghanistan. You know, so what if we have to need we have the need to attack the Taliban again because they're trying to kill us? You know that there's going to be another attack that's going to be launched from Afghanistan. We don't even have a base there to counter it. Even though we've got bases in, you know, Korea after the war, we've got bases all over hostile areas. But we don't have it in Afghanistan. Why? Because Biden just wanted to be out. Another disaster from his first year that he's trying to gloss over with this January 6th stuff is the open Southern border, which has allowed, I don't know, a million or two illegals into the country. And we know why he's doing it. He's doing it for one reason, because he knows they'll all be Democratic voters. And that will ensure that his party will never lose because he'll just keep on giving him free shit. We know that. But more importantly, even beyond that, if it can be, is they're unvaccinated. They're not tested for COVID even. They're spreading the virus even as Biden is screaming uh, to get people vaccinated and tested. He's screaming at the people who refuse to get vaccinated. What about the illegals that are coming in by the million? And all the drugs, the fentanyl seizures, they're up 233% over the year due to this soft southern border policy. And, you know, there have been terrorists that have also been caught at the border. Is that the kind of stuff we want in just because Joe Biden wants more Democratic voters? Also, we've got the increase in violent crime in every major city in America. We've got massive inflation, the biggest numbers in decades. Gas prices are out of control. His whole build back better bullshit crashed and burned. That liberal, every liberal wet dream policy was going to be covered in that. He won't speak up at all about the crazy anti-police, anti-Semitic wing of his party that is growing by the day. He won't castigate the Chicago Teachers Union, which is led by an avowed socialist, and they shut down the Chicago public schools for three days and counting, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of last week. And he's terrified Biden <clears throat> to say a word about it because the union raises so much money for him. But back to Trump, if we can, because you see, I don't really feel great about either one of these guys. Back to Trump and his selfish behavior, which caused the January 6 riots. Because he was pissed that he lost the election. Now, let's remember the run up to this was the Senate losing the Senate majority right before the riots. It was right before the Republicans, it was the Georgia Senate races. The Republicans needed to win just one of the two seats in order to maintain a majority. But Trump was mad because he lost Georgia and he was pissed that there was no effort to overturn that result. So, he felt, you know, these people didn't help me. Why should I do anything to help them? So he first claimed that the two Senate races were illegal and invalid. That was when he was whining about his loss. He said this after his supporters in, about his supporters in Georgia. They didn't want to vote because they knew we got screwed in the presidential election. He also said during his rallies in the state that he didn't stress to voters that Georgia's voting system was reliable because he was, quote, angry with what happened there. So naturally, guess what happened? None of the supporters showed up. They stayed home, and Republicans lost both seats, and now the Democrats control the Senate, and they've done God knows how much damage, leftist damage, some of it, because Trump told his supporters to stay home. Now, you know that Trump, I mean, if anybody knows Trump, even if you're a fan of his, you know that he cares more about his personal vendettas than he does the country. So he hates, of course, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp for refusing to overturn the uh, Georgia election results. So a few months ago in in a speech in Georgia, Trump said that he would be just fine with Stacey Abrams. That was Kemp's 2018 opponent in the governor's race. She barely lost. He would be just fine with her becoming governor in 2022. Can you imagine this? How insane this is that he's so hateful that he's willing to hurt the country, hurt his party? He said, quote, and Stacey Abrams, who still has not conceded, which she hasn't, and that's okay, Trump said of of Abrams, Stacey, would you like to take his place? It's okay with me. Of course, having her, I think might be better than having your existing governor, if you want to know what I think, might very well be better. He's endorsing Stacey Abrams, who was a star in the Democratic Party, to become the governor of Georgia. How utterly sick is this? From the top Republican in the country? Come on, man. Now, you know that that Trump is going to do all he can to make that happen. He's already has one of his orders. Former U.S. Senator David Perdue is going to run in a primary against Kemp before facing Abrams in the rematch. And you know that if Kemp wins, Trump is going to say that everything's rigged again. And he even said, I can't imagine that Brian Kemp, who has hurt election integrity in Georgia so badly, can do well at the ballot box unless the election is rigged. So, you, you, you know, he's already said, Trump, that the MAGA base will not vote for Kemp after what he did with respect to election integrity and two horribly run elections for president and then the two Senate seats. So his supporters will stay home again and Stacey Abrams will become governor of Georgia. You heard it here. I'm not the first person to say it, but she will become governor and largely because of Trump. And that's just a guy who, you know, doesn't care really about the country when you when you do things like that how could you possibly suggest that he does unless you just want to burn it to the ground i mean abrams is the kind of person who if she becomes governor that gives her sort of the gravitas to run for president because now she's governor of a, of an important state and abrams wants to run for president and she's a crazy leftist you do not want big mama in the white house if you're a republican trump is doing all he can to make that happen And he has these personal vendettas that are just, they're just bonkers, man. He did the same thing with the former Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was like his twin, his twin when, when he was in office and he came out and he ripped him to shreds, Trump, and he attacked Israel, claiming that Israel wanted Americans to fight its war against Iran. That is a hundred percent total bullshit. Israel is hardly afraid to fight wars. But Netanyahu did an unpardonable sin, according to Trump. He congratulated Joe Biden after the election results. Can you imagine this? He actually congratulated Israel's biggest ally, the, the winner of the election, because he knew he had to. But Trump will do all he can to punish Netanyahu and Israel if he's given the chance. He doesn't have any loyalty to anybody to Netanyahu or, or Israel. He has zero loyalty. But this is, you know, who he is. But who else can possibly run in the next election instead of Trump? Because I think, you know, there should be. Now, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's highly intelligent, first of all, which is a nice uh, change of events uh, for the last two presidents. He went to Yale and Harvard Law School and was an attorney for the military. Trump, on the other hand, pronounced Yosemite National Park as Yo Semite. Think about that. Trump is not smart enough for the job. And it showed in his performance, first of all, not knowing how to pronounce pronounce Yosemite. Now, who amongst us did not watch watch Looney Tunes when we were kids and watch Yosemite Sam on Bugs Bunny? That's how everybody learned how to pronounce Yosemite. Yes, I agree. When I looked at it when I was like six, I thought it was Yosemite also. But then I watched one cartoon and it was Yosemite. Come on, man. How do you? Come on. In the summer before he ran for president, Trump gave a radio interview and revealed that he didn't know the difference between the Kurds, you know the Kurds, there are allies, people from the mountainous region of Kurdistan, and the Quds Force, Quds, Q-U-D-S, a branch of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, who, by the way, last week threatened to murder Trump. He didn't know the difference. How do you not know this if you're running for president? Now, I don't, I don't want to go into a full discussion of, of Trump just yet for this program, but beyond being smart, not smart enough for the job, my main beef with him is he's not an, he's not an ideologue. He doesn't have any strong set of beliefs of what was needed to write the nation in 2016. He just doesn't have it. He, his only ideology is money and himself. And that's my beef with him. He's having these uh, insane uh, meltdowns on Twitter. Instead of using every precious day he had, every precious day, the four years, to right the country, get us back on track, get us away from the violent lurch to the left that the Democrats had done under Obama, instead he's waking up and fighting on Twitter. He's having these meltdowns with typos and misspellings and grammatical errors. He's fighting with uh, low IQ, crazy Micah and Psycho Joe on MSNBC instead of using his time to save us from a future. President Stacey Abrams. Now, he may have been right about many of the things that he said and the people he was fighting with. I, I really can't disagree with that because I, I can't stand uh, Joe Scarborough either. He's disgusting. But he's the president, Trump. Act presidential. Make the country feel calmer. Be a silent assassin, the way DeSantis, who just gets the job done. He just gets it done. Doesn't whine like a weirdo. And people grew exhausted by Trump. That's really the truth. They just grew exhausted by him. They would wake up, remember how it was, you'd wake up every morning with a knot in your stomach, wondering what kind of ass hattery was going on, what was happening that day. He just knew something was going to happen. If he ever had a good day, there were then two bad days in a row after. And as I said, you know, had he delivered the goods, had he done what was needed to get us back on track and stop the get, as I said, the violent lurch to the left. I could have lived with, you know, the weirdness and the stupidity and the immaturity and, you know, all of that. But he just didn't. And, and understand this, I'm not a never-Trumper. I would support him ahead of any leftist maniac that the Democrats would, would run. I mean, I would do it holding my nose. But, you know, I don't care about the personal issues, even though they're annoying to me. All I cared about whether the personal issues held him back from doing the job that he was elected to do. And he just really didn't. And I think that, you know, what also hurt him was just his lack of knowledge of political issues in Washington. And he ended up hiring the worst people who almost all turned on him. Remember, he always said that, you know, only the best. I only hired the best people. Well, that is just such a fucking lie, man. It's just a lie. He had Omarosa. Omarosa from The Apprentice, like the bad person from The Apprentice. She was in his administration. She had serious access to the president. This is a diehard liberal with severe mental problems. Guess what? It turned out badly. Can you imagine? Who could have possibly predicted that? Of course, she was fired. She uh, then recorded the chief of staff, John Kelly, firing her. She had to be dragged off the premises. Then she wrote a book blasting Trump and went on every TV show claiming that he had mental problems and, and was a racist. Now, who didn't see that coming? Only one large, fat, orange man. Now, how about keeping all of the Obama holdovers in place? Every other president knows that when you come into office and the prior party was in power before, you fire everybody. Because you know they're not going to be loyal to you. They're pissed that their party lost. Not Trump. He kept 50 of them in his administration. They all stabbed him in the back. He didn't see that coming. We all know it. The reason that we listen to uh, p- political stuff, the reason we read it, listen to podcasts, watch the news is because we're, we're news junkies. We're political junkies. Trump was never like that. That's why he didn't know that some of these people were bad. That's that's why he hired people like Chris Ray to head the FBI. Chris Ray then says that Antifa is an ideology and not an organization. This is Chris Ray who knew in 2019 that Hunter Biden believed that his laptop was stolen by Russian agents and that they were going to use it to blackmail Joe Biden? Ray didn't say a word a year later when Joe Biden claimed that the laptop issue was a Russian hoax. He knew that Joe Biden was lying while he was running against Trump, while he was appointed by Trump. That's the kind of people that Trump hired. People that just hated his guts because he didn't know better to know where their, you know, their, what their political state was. Rex Tillerson, is Secretary of State, everybody knew that was going to be a disaster except one man. H.R. McMaster is a national security advisor. I mean, she, he was the one who let Susan Rice have continued security clearance despite mishandling classified information involving Trump associates. Mad dog, maddest, disaster. Mark Milley, the nation's top general, apologized on CNN after appearing with Trump on a photo outside the White House after uh, protesters were dispersed. And he attacked Trump personally? Mark Milley, who compared Trump supporters with Nazis? Not fired. Mark Milley, who said he'd tell China in advance if the U.S. launched an attack? Not fired. How about Fauci? Anthony Fauci, not fired? and it was Trump that shut the country down first. Remember that. As bad as Joe Biden has been, he's been horrific. It was Donald Trump who shut the country down. Here's some more other brilliant hires. Jeff Sessions, Bill Barr, Rents Priebus, who was what could not have been more full Washington insider swamp, Wilbur Ross, who couldn't stay awake in meetings, John Bolton, who hated his guts, hired him too. And again, my position against Trump in 2016, and I certainly came out about this, was that he was just simply too dumb for the job. He just didn't have the ideology that's needed, like DeSantis does, to fix the country. I felt that what was going to happen, and this was my main beef with him, was forget that I didn't like him, because I'd vote for him if I didn't like him. It was because I was afraid he'd waste the four years and not get elected, not get reelected, And the Democrats, in response, would go crazy. Because of Trump and go further left because of him, and all that happened. That's what I thought was going to happen was that by the end of the four years, people were going to be running to the polls like vomiting into bags to get him out of office. Now, it may be that Trump was the only Republican that could have beaten Hillary Clinton. Probably true. You know, so it was like a real Sophie's choice there. You know, as all my whining, I don't know that I had a better alternative in 2016. Right? I mean, I don't know who else could have run and beaten her. But that was my problem with, with Trump. I just didn't think that he was going to get reelected and he would blow the next four years. He'd blow the four years that he was in. We'd lose the four years after and the country would go further to the left. I just didn't think he could keep it together. Now, we're not, we're not even talking about the fraud. And I have no doubt that there was fraud on election day. I'm not saying that uh, that necessarily cost him the election. I don't know. Very possible. I do know that many people were sick and tired of him. Moderates that voted for him in 2016, they just had enough. They thought that Biden was going to be moderate. And, you know, he certainly is And He's barely alive. I mean, he's moderately alive, I suppose. That's it. But Ron DeSantis is smart. He has no problem slapping Biden. He saved Florida. He's made it a destination spot for zillions of liberals who are just looking to escape, you know, their masked states from hell. He stood up for the people there and Florida is doing fine. They're happy. Children aren't wearing masks six hours a day in order that they won't catch a a two-day cold. DeSantis is everything that that Trump claims that he is, but he really isn't. And by the way, kicking Trump off Twitter was the worst thing that Democrats could have done because reading his idiocy every day, it hurt him. Now that it's not on Twitter, it's actually good good for him at least. Now, of course, I haven't mentioned Ted Cruz. He'll never be president. He just seems just so, I don't know, there's like this greasy factor about him. He looks like a guy who would have child porn on his computer, dresses weird. He's the kind of guy that you see pictures of him. He's wearing jeans with running shoes and he's got a belt on while he's wearing a t-shirt. He's just awkward. And I think he's really smart and I agree with many of his positions, which is why it's painful that he's so damn weird to ever have a chance to become president. And he's constantly making like own goals, just these stupid mistakes, really dumb ones. He doesn't have a lot of common sense. He finally had his chance, of course, this past week to get back at Trump for all the abuse Trump dropped on his head during the primaries in 2016. When the January 6th riots were being used by the Democrats, of course, to bash Republicans and everybody was piling on, Ted Cruz couldn't keep his stupid mouth shut. Instead, he referred to the riots as, quote, a violent terrorist attack, which is such a joke. 9-11 was a violent terrorist attack. So was the 2017 uh, Muslim terror attack in Lower Manhattan, where a driver ran into cyclists and runners and killed eight, or the Muslim terrorists who killed, terrorists, singular, who killed 49 at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. The 2015 husband and wife Muslim terror attack, which killed 14 in San Bernardino, California, the 2013 Muslim terror attack at the Boston Marathon by the brothers, those are violent terror attacks, not hillbillies with mostly pitchforks losing their minds. Yes, there was violence there. I have no doubt. Plenty of people were injured, but you cannot lump that in with a, as a violent terrorist attack. You just—it's just a, a, a horrible thing to do, especially by a Republican. And of course, Ted Cruz ran on uh, Tucker Carlson and begged for forgiveness. And I don't watch Fox at all, but to Tucker Carlson's uh, credit, I read, he just slapped the shit out of him and he deserved it. Now, I once had a run in with Ted Cruz, if you can believe after Chapo uh, Guzman was convicted. Cruz, which is what he does. He just grandstands for things that he knows aren't real just to try to get people behind him. He introduced a bill that went nowhere about, you know, like, like most of his bills, calling that the border wall, the southern border wall that Trump had uh, wanted, was going to be paid for by funds seized from Chapo Guzman. Now, obviously, it was just done to get him publicity. And he called for the seizure of Chapo money to be used for pay, pay for the wall, except that zero dollars had been seized. The government couldn't locate any of Chapo Guzman's assets, zero. Yet there was a forfeiture order entered against Guzman for, I don't know, billions of dollars, but no money was found. And Cruz is coming out publicly saying, use the money the government took from Chapo Guzman. And I'm like, look, thinking to myself, you know, I'm a Republican. I've got many moderate views, but I'm a Republican at this point. And I don't want to see Ted Cruz make a complete ass out of himself because I figure that at some point someone's going to figure out, besides me, that zero dollars were seized from Chapo. So I gently, on Twitter, under his tweet about the bill, I wrote, Senator, there's actually no money of Guzman's that's been forfeited. No money was located to fulfill the forfeiture order. You know, completely non-attacking, not critical, just pointing out that, you know, you may want to calm down with this shit. And the guy attacks me on Twitter in response. Where did you go to law school? Don't you know how the forfeiture laws work? Of course there is money. This is what this imbecile, this freak, had the balls to write publicly. He lied. He lied to America. He knows full well that what he wrote was a lie. And I was shocked, really, that he wrote it. I wrote in response and tried to clarify that there was zero dollars located of Chapo's money. So how can you use money that you don't have to pay for a wall? Are you going to take the forfeiture order? And you're going to give it to the people that are building the wall and say, here, use this forfeiture order to pay, you know, for your home mortgage, for the food for your kids. So I I gently wrote back again, you know, there was $0 actually located. And I got attacked by every MAGA imbecile calling me a leftist, bad attacks. It was like a joke. Some bunch of uh, stupid women named chicks on the right or something. Idiots, just complete low grade moron idiots. All you had to do was read what I said and understand. There's no money. They didn't find any money instead attacking me at being a liberal. What are you kidding me? I mean, I just didn't want, you know, the world to come out publicly and point out the Cruz was lying. So I tried to gently correct it. I then of course sent a direct message to I don't know if it was his office or him directly, saying, Can you please stop having your supporters threatening my life? because of the uh, tweet that I wrote. Not that I cared. I get my life threatened all the time. No response at all. Nothing. That's the kind of shit that uh, Ted Cruz is, and that's what he does. He's smart, but he's awkward. He has no common sense. He's just a really awkward dude that does not know how to be uh, likable at all. Now, I'm going to take a quick break, mainly so I can choke and drink uh, some water. When I get back from the break, I owed you a story about how a dishonest, incompetent lawyer ended up saving my client from a very long stretch in prison and certain deportation afterward. And this story, and we're going to really shift gears dramatically, exemplifies how as a defense lawyer, you need to exploit every last opportunity that arises, no matter how unlikely. And in that case, we created something out of nothing because what I saw five minutes after meeting this client and hearing his tale of woe, I knew that we could save him. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're going to go into our law portion of the show. Now I get emails from listeners, which is nice. I like get feedback. I appreciate it. And uh, they wrote to me after last week's show and asked me why I wasn't afraid to criticize the purple-haired Jelaine Maxwell lawyer, and what will other lawyers think of you when you're talking about your politics? Isn't that bad? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid? That was the word that came up in most of the emails I received. First of all. It's not an attack on her purple hair. It's not an attack on her politics, her gender, her style, her at all. I didn't say any of that. None of those issues are relevant when you're in front of a jury trying to save someone's life. When you're before a jury, it's not the time to make social statements, even if it's not your intention to make a social statement. It's not the intent of the lawyer when you're in front of a jury that matters. It's the perception by the jury. Now, surely this lawyer felt, well, I like wearing my hair purple, spiky purple. Well, that's just wonderful. I think it's great. She looked great, ravishing, wonderful with it. I loved it. But an inference could be made that she was making a political statement by somebody on the jury, or perhaps simply that she had a a certain political position that people on the jury didn't believe, didn't agree with. And it may piss jurors off. So, if it may piss jurors off, why do it? That's the point. Why do it? I dress very conservatively when I'm on trial for that very reason. I don't reveal political positions in front of a jury, anything that can polarize, because I want every last thing that I do to help me win a case. And you can't win a case without getting the jurors to your side. And lastly, by the way, for what it's worth for the listeners. If I'm afraid to voice my opinion on a podcast, is that the kind of lawyer you want? Afraid of his own shadow, afraid to take any chances? You think that doesn't translate to your representation in a case that the lawyer is afraid of offending the prosecutor? He's afraid of offending the judge, other lawyers. It's all adds up to a lawyer who's gonna lose your case because he or she is afraid to take the risks that are needed to win a trial in a system that is already so stacked against defendants. There's no question in my mind how difficult it is to win these cases. You want to use every possible advantage to win; otherwise, you're going to lose. Now, here's uh, the story that I promised. A client came in out of the blue. You know, I get a lot of clients that come in. Um, you know, just that don't know me beforehand, and wanted a representation on a serious federal narcotics case and had violence in it as well. Serious case. And he had a a pretty bad story to tell me. He had a lawyer for years who was representing him during the investigation part of this case. He had now been charged and was released on bail. But the lawyer was representing him, as I said, during the investigation phase. Now, during the pre-arrest investigation phase, there's not all that much you can do unless you want to investigate and, and perhaps interview witnesses as a defense lawyer, but for the most part, you're just monitoring what's going on. Anyway, the client tells me that after he was arrested, he's in jail, calls the lawyer and tells him, you know, come and get me out, try to get me bail. <clears throat> there's no guarantee that he'd get bail. He wasn't a citizen. And it was a case with five year mandatory minimum sentence. So this is normal. You, you get arrested and you call your lawyer to get you out. But he tells me that the lawyer said he couldn't come. And this is after representing him for years. Tells him on the phone that, uh, while he's sitting in jail that he had a conflict of interest and couldn't represent the man any longer. Never mentioned it until he got arrested. Never told him what the conflict was. So to me, I'm asking the client, what was the conflict? I don't know. Seemed very fishy to me. I asked him you know, if he knew what possibly could be the conflict. He had no idea. I then probed a little bit. And uh, asked him, you know, was there anybody else relating to this case that you know that knows the lawyer? He says, well, as a matter of fact, I referred a friend of mine to this lawyer for a state criminal case. I asked him if the state criminal case had anything to do with the charges that my new client was involved in. He says, yeah. In fact, I was surprised that he didn't get indicted with me in the federal case. Well, you know, that was very clear to me at that point what had happened. And this is as a lawyer, sometimes you got to actually think a little bit besides going to get your hair colored purple. Sometimes you have to actually think. And it was very clear to me that the friend was cooperating against my new client, which is why he wasn't charged. And which is why the lawyer who was now representing, I'll call him the rat, he couldn't represent my client in the new federal case because he's representing the rat and the target, my new client at the same time. The lawyers representing the cooperator and the target of the cooperation at the same time. And it was the only conflict of interest that could have prevented the lawyer from refusing to represent my new client. It was clear. So when I told this to my new client, the guy just, you know, first got really mad, felt betrayed. He got nervous also because he knew that his former lawyer knew all about his history. He'd been representing him for over a decade. The conversations they had over the years in which the client, Disclosed the things that perhaps he wouldn't want an enemy knowing, criminality, and if the lawyer was representing the cooperator, you know, now in the case against him, how does he know that the lawyer is not going to use what he told him and tell the government? And also, the lawyer knew about everything about the client's involvement in this case, so he's scared. So he's scared for the the case at hand. He's scared for prior criminal conduct. And mostly he's scared because he's not an American citizen. And if he gets convicted, he's, after he does his jail time, which is a minimum of five, he then gets deported back to his uh, home country where he hadn't been since he was a child and had zero family there. Now, this was the most incredible part, if you can believe it gets even more incredible, is the former lawyer that had represented the client told him that his best bet was either to cooperate with the government or if he was convicted and deported to sneak back into America which just, of course, happens to be another crime. These are obviously two things that the client was unwilling to do, either become a cooperator or commit another crime. And this is what's being counseled to him by his former lawyer. And to make it worse, the case against the new client, my new client was just airtight. The government had tapes and all horrible stuff, discussing you know, everything bad possible. And to me, there was really no escape based on the evidence. <clears throat> there was a five-year mandatory minimum and mandatory deportation. In addition, his sentencing guidelines, which is an advisory range for the judge to consider when sentencing, was like seven years. So how about doing seven years and then getting deported instead of getting out? As for his former lawyer's betrayal, <clears throat> incredibly, I knew as soon as I heard it that this was like a gift from God. A gift from God for the client. You're thinking, what is, what, what am I smoking here? And I said to him, This, I know you're not going to believe it, but what your former lawyer did to you may very well end up being your only chance out of this mess. The client looked at me like I was nuts. 11 months later, despite facing initially a five-year minimum to 40 years in prison maximum, definite deportation, my client received just a 30-month sentence to a a non-deportable offense and received the recommendation for the residential drug abuse program. It's called RDAP which could result in his release from prison in just over a year. And the moral to the story is when life gives you a lemon of a case, you have to make lemonade. So what did I do to fix this mess? Beyond the uh, prior defense lawyer's obvious conflict of interest was my belief that perhaps this prior lawyer took what he learned from my client and passed it on to the government while he was cooperating his new client which was my client's old friend. Now, as I uh, uh, thought of when I was telling this to the prosecutor was that the lawyer made a point, even when admitting, saying that he had a conflict of interest, contacted my client after he gets out of jail and asks him about other criminal activity he'd been involved in over the years. Now, why would a guy who's not representing him anymore be asking about such things? So it made pretty clear to me that it's possible that the government's evidence that they had in this case against my new client had been contaminated by this ill-gotten information if they got it from the prior lawyer. Now, when I get the case, the first thing I do is I alert the prosecutors to the conflict of interest, namely that one of their cooperators, and I, and I confirm that he in fact was a cooperator, that my client's friend and the, the, the client of the former lawyer. And I said, you know, it's, it's very possible that your grand jury indictment that you used to charge my client was contaminated by information that was not gotten legally. The prosecutors were shocked when I told them this. And they told me that the prior lawyer told them that they'd only represented this client in some immigration matters years before. They said, it's not our fault. We didn't know. And I then uh, allowed the, the government to see some recent texts and emails between the client and his former lawyer that made very clear that it was not immigration matters he was representing him on that he was representing him on this investigation, and the government was not exactly receptive. Of course, I, in every case, I assume that the government is just going to you know fall over backwards for me and roll out the red carpet. Shockingly, that didn't happen. They felt you know my client is going to get prosecuted, and we don't think this is an issue that should make a difference. So we worked on a motion to the court requesting a hearing into the extent of the damage done by the lawyer how much information that was given to him by my client made its way into the grand jury. And they then voted on a bad indictment because of that bad information. And first, we'd have to prove that the former lawyer had been representing my client and giving him legal advice at the same time he was representing a cooperator against them. And my client had the most meticulous, contemporaneous notes of every last interaction they had. And I asked him, I said, why would you do this? You know, why were you so paranoid? He said, well, one time I'm speaking to him and he asked me to lift up my shirt to see if I have a listening device on. This is a lawyer in New York, if you can believe. He just felt something wasn't right. So he wanted to keep notes of everything they did. So obviously, you know, all the notes we had, the emails, the texts, it left no doubt that prior counsel had been using our client in an inappropriate and unethical manner. And mainly it could implicate his rights to counsel pursuant to the Sixth Amendment. It's pretty explosive stuff that would have been very bad if it came out publicly to the government if they were doing this, especially the office that was prosecuting is the Southern District of New York. And they have so many issues uh, with prosecutorial misconduct. They had an Iranian financing case uh, getting around sanctions after a conviction was thrown out because they held back exculpatory material. They're constantly getting caught one thing after another. And I just assume that the government did not want this black eye to be public. We then told the judge about the motion we were making before we made it, and she expressed real concern, told us to write the motion, and she'd set a hearing for it. And, you know, I had to, again, believe that the government thought it would be bad for them. But before we filed the motion, before we filed that shot, we sent a draft to the government, and at that point, with the paper in their hands, and I assume wanting no part of a really ugly public hearing which could expose what they did with this cooperating witness and his dishonest lawyer, the prosecutors agreed to a very fair offer that we made, that our client would be permitted to plead guilty to a non-drugs count. And instead of having a five-year minimum and 40-year maximum, he'd have a zero minimum and a five-year maximum. And by the way, the crime that he was pleading to wouldn't trigger deportation. This was A really fair result, and the prosecutors were fair at the end. Of course, we had to drag them kicking and screaming to it, but still. Now, we go to sentencing, and as I mentioned at the beginning, he was facing about seven years in terms of the sentencing guidelines when the case began. So I assume that if he was zero to five now, the judge, seeing that his conduct really merited a seven-year sentence, she'll just give him the five years, saying, hey, listen, you're getting a major break, you're only getting five, and you're not being deported. Nope. She was so upset about what happened with the former lawyer that she gave him 30 months. And as I said, gave him uh, a recommendation for the RDAP program, because again, what the lawyer did, the former lawyer did was so bad. So that could take a year off the sentence and ended up that he was only facing about a year or so in jail. That's what the RDAP does. If you complete this 12 month program, drug Mm -hmm. abuse program in prison, they take a year off your sentence. And I actually really loved this client. So it was such a massive break and I was so happy for him because it's not always that you represent people that you really like. And if you're representing someone you really like, you want to have a great result. And it certainly happened in that case. And I think the point of the story is it's important for your lawyer to look at every last detail. Don't just say, oh, I'm overwhelmed with all my work and I've got so many things. I can't focus a lot on your case. Come on, you're guilty. Just plead guilty. No. People are coming to you and you know, their lives are in your hands. So what are you going to do? Are you going to spend some time and see if you can get them out of, out of their mess? Every case is a puzzle. It's a puzzle that you've got to figure out. If you can figure out the puzzle, you can get your client out of the mess that he's in. It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but it can happen most of the time if you put the time and energy in and not be lazy. I tell this to people. This is the biggest problem with lawyers today. They're just lazy and they're cowardly. As soon as that bell hits six o'clock, they're running out of the office. They don't want to be bothered until the next day. Well, you need to have a lawyer who's willing to be unconventional, willing to think out of the box and have a pair of balls when it's needed and not be afraid to offend lawyers, prosecutors, or judges. That's what you need. Now on next week's show, I think I'm going to try to spend a little more time perhaps on the law. I just get so angry during the week. I always say, I'm not going to spend all that much time on current events because I am a lawyer after all, and presumably the reason you're you're tuning into this is because you want to hear stories about my legal career. but I'm going to talk, and then I get so excited during the week I can't help it, and I just go on and on screaming and yelling. Now I'm going to talk about one or two cases over the years uh, next week. One, this happened when an old family friend called me out of the blue and asked me to visit a friend of his in prison and take the case. Well, Okay, I mean, I'm willing to do it, I suppose. There's only one problem. He's just been convicted of molesting four little boys, all brothers. Little boys in Newark. And what happened in that case, and I'll go into that soup to nuts because it is an absolutely fascinating case throughout my 31 years of, of lawyering. That's certainly in the top five. I'll also talk about a case I had defending the rapper The Game on charges that he impersonated a New York City cop. Imagine that. A guy with tattoos on his face is accused of impersonating a a New York City cop. As you can imagine, that was a really stupid case with not a very surprising result. And that was one of the few cases that when I got, I think I've had two or three in my life that I've told the client at the beginning, as soon as I got the case, this is a 100% 100 guaranteed win. You try not to say that very often because 100% means 100%. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I appreciate you listening in. Talk to you next week.